If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. From tomorrow, period drama fans will be glued to their screens as Netflix releases their latest story set in the Bridgerton universe, Queen Charlotte, A Bridgerton Story. Created by showrunner Shonda Rhimes, the series fictionalises the story of Charlotte of Mecklenburg-Strelitz as a young woman shipped off to marry the King of England, George III. Polly Putnam, a collections curator at Historic Royal Palaces, acted as historical advisor on the drama, and I spoke to her to find out more. Thank you so much for joining me, Polly. It's lovely to have you on the History Extra podcast. To start us off in our conversation about the Queen Charlotte series, could you tell us a little bit about the series and how it connects to the first two series of Bridgerton that I think many people may have already seen? So it's a prequel, essentially. So it tells the fictional history of the relationship between Queen Charlotte and George III. And you said a really important word there that I want to delve into, the word fictional. There's an opening disclaimer on episode one, isn't there, that says, Dearest gentle reader, this is the story of Queen Charlotte from Bridgerton. 
It is not a history lesson. It is fiction inspired by fact and all liberties taken by the author are quite intentional. So it's important to say from the off that we're not talking about a straight historical drama here, but something that instead kind of pulls on the threads of real history. I was really intrigued as to what it's like to be a historical advisor on a show that that knowingly moves away from real history and, and does something different at points. I think it, it was really interesting. So I started on this, gosh, way back, I think, in October, and I had to write a series of reports for Shonda Rhimes herself. And she kind of wanted um, a little bit about Queen Charlotte, a little bit about George III, a little bit about the madness of George III, or that kind of period of his mental and physical illnesses. And the way that she referred to it as our sort of our conversations continued is she referred to it as her canon. So this was kind of the basic history that she drew upon completely. But she was very clear from the off that because we're in kind of Bridgeton land and not the real past, I suppose that's the way to call it, that this was obviously going to be a work of, of fiction. And I, I call it fan fiction because it's, in a way, it's been written with a lot of respect and a lot of love for the history and for, for the characters. And I think a lot of sympathy and empathy. It's really interesting. And actually, for me, in my daily role, I look after Kew Palace, which was the home of George III and Charlotte. It's been lovely because she's introduced characters like Princess Augusta, who we I think that this is the first time we've ever seen her on film. So all of these things, it's, it's really interesting. And, you know, there are lovely details throughout which are very much, you know, informed by the pictures and the history I gave her. But she's had fun with it. And I think that's something that you know, you can't be snobby about it at all. I think you just have to take it for what it is. It must be so interesting to see how that material that you gave Shonda Rhimes has then come to inform the series, as you say. And it's really interesting to me that the historical advisor has been involved from such a formative stage of the project. Um, you're not there to kind of come in and check facts. You're there from the very beginning. Yeah, I mean, the, the scripts did come in kind of thick and fast and he did kind of sort of almost instant fact-checking at parts. But I think they could kind of pick and choose. And I think for me, one of the things that I consider my main job is to give them information that was inspiring. One of the early scenes is the wedding of George III and Queen Charlotte. And, you know, just the fact that I gave them the Reynolds sketch of the wedding by Reynolds, which actually hangs in Kew Palace. And the fact that that scene is so obviously inspired by a picture I gave them, I think is really lovely. So obviously there's there's purposeful play with history here. I think play is a good way of putting it. But what are some of the themes that you think the series captures really well about the reign of George III and about the world of that Georgian royal circle that him and Charlotte inhabit? I, I think for me, one of the most heartening things is that actually the George III that we see on screen is always this sort of ill man who's infirm and kind of out of it. But actually the George III that we see in this depiction is very much an active man. He's Farmer George. He's also portrayed very much as a scientist. And I think that's always far more interesting and actually a side of George III that we've never seen before. It's probably actually my favourite fact that I gave to Shonda was she sort of mentioned a sort of his interest in science in one of the, the scripts that I saw. And I said, you do know that he was also a farmer, so feel free to do sexy topless farming. And she was like, really? Whoa. I think she was a bit disappointed that it was sheep that he was mainly interested in and arable. 
But I, I think it was it was very joyful quite early on that we see the actor kind of in his, in his topless glory. And actually, I spoke to him at the previous screening and he was like, oh, gosh, so it's your fault then that I had to go and see a personal trainer. <laughs> so aside from sexy topless farming, why do you think that the story of George and Charlotte makes such great material for a drama? I think because in a way it's unknown. You have this kind of shadow of mental illness, which is, I think, the only fact that people know about George III. And actually, I think it feels like quite a relevant story because in in the previous series of Bridgerton, we see this amazing kind of strong woman who has to take care of her very sick husband. And I think that's quite compelling because I think a lot of people are carers. A lot of people live with mental illness. And I think that in a way, despite the fact that they're, they're very royal and very elevated, I think this is a story which sadly feels familiar to many of us. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. And of course, as we've established in this conversation, Queen Charlotte herself was, of course, a real person. What do we know about the real Charlotte? She's not as cool as the Bridgerton Charlotte, I'm afraid. But I think the things that they do have in common is that actually Queen Charlotte was quite successful about what her role was. And actually, to be a good queen, you actually had to be kind of quite a passive character. You couldn't kind of speak your mind about politics. You had to support your husband. And actually, the thing that she was the best at, probably, and that's her main job, was having children. So Queen Charlotte and George III managed to have 15, which isn't bad going. 
And they did have quite a lot of trouble with their children, didn't they? Which is something we do see depicted in the series. What can you tell us about the reality of that relationship? I, mean, I think, obviously, the one of the scenes that we see early on is the death of the Princess Royal, which was a national tragedy. It's actually the first royal commemorative ceramics really sort of appear from the death of the Princess Royal, a much-loved character, and sort of the hopes of the nation very much rested on her. I think some of the things that really did differ, princesses, the Queen Charlotte's daughters, really did want to marry. And actually, that's as a royal princess, that's your best hope of any sort of sense of freedom. If you're married, you have your own household to run. The poor princesses were kind of drawing pictures. I did an exhibition back in 2016 about... Queen Charlotte and the princesses. It was all very sweet. We have these lovely, sweet drawings. We have the doll's house. And everyone goes, oh, it's so sweet. These are children. It's like, no, these poor women were there drawing pictures when they were 35 years old. So Um, why did they not marry then? I think slightly circumstance. So um, they're kind of, they're reaching marrying age just as poor George III hits his kind of real, real state of illness. I think as well there's the kind of the Napoleonic Wars which happen as well. So it's kind of quite it's quite difficult to kind of make alliances when you're at war with half of Europe. I think with George III, because his sister, um, Caroline Matilda, had such a terrible time over in Denmark with her husband, I think George III really did want to have his daughters and his family around him, and so and so did Charlotte as well. So there is this sense of kind of I want my daughter near me, partly because Getting married as a princess is a big risk. I mean, this happened to poor Charlotte herself. She's 17 years old. She lived in this sort of quite a rural province in Germany, Mecklenburg, Strelitz. Her mother dies only two months before. And then suddenly she's shipped off on a ship to marry someone the very same day. So it's a horrendous thing. And so I can imagine and actually see why that you wouldn't necessarily want that for your children. But also this kind of big blind spot that both George and Charlotte have. It's like, why wouldn't you want to hang around with me as parents? I think possibly a lot of parents have that have that blind spot as well. That issue of women's lack of agency in this world is an interesting one because I think that's what Shonda Rhimes is really good at, isn't she? She's really good at put, putting women at the centre of the story and putting women's agency back into the story. Is that something that appealed to you working on this? Yes, I think, um, I mean, having said that, you know, Queen Charlotte was possibly a bit of a sort of a doormat. She was actually an incredibly intelligent woman. So she had an interest in botany from a very young age. And actually, this is one of the things that's really lovely is that she flicks through a book of geometry in in the library in one of the scenes. And we know that she created this incredible series of geometric drawings, which in order to draw them, you actually had to understand the geometry behind them. So she's an incredibly clever woman. There's this sort of note that she writes to her very best friend, Lady Onslow, where she writes, this is private or private. If she ever said this in public, it would be a disaster. If women were afforded the same education as men, they could rule just as well. So I think what we have in in kind of Golda's depiction of Queen Charlotte is that idea, what if she could take control in the way that she wouldn't have been allowed to in her lifetime? So for me, that's something quite joyful. It's sort of this idea, what if this quite intelligent woman was the kind of the real power behind the throne? 
And it's a new take on this story, isn't it? As you say, there have been depictions of George III on screen before where he's been the old king, the old, in quote marks, mad king. But here, this show isn't called King George. It isn't called George and Charlotte. It's called Queen Charlotte. And I guess her her experience in that has probably been previously overlooked. I think so. And I think that's one of the things that's kind of really comes through in the history. So the kind of the, the famous period of George III's illness happens between 1788 and 1789. And the toll on Queen Charlotte was that her hair went white. Such was the kind of the stress of looking after her husband. There were kind of various incidents where perhaps George III got a little bit violent with her that are recorded, but we don't know the details of that, but it's said that her hair turned white overnight. She suddenly thrust into politics, which is something that George III really wanted to keep her away from. So it's an incredibly stressful time for her. And what do we know about the real George III's bouts of mental illness? What sources do we have that tell us about those? It's it's really interesting. So most of the sources that survive, I mean, there are kind of two types of sources. One of the most famous sources are the diaries of Fanny Burney, who's a novelist, and you read her accounts, and they're very dramatic indeed. Then you have the diaries of Fulk Greville, um, so one of the king's equerries, and possibly I'd say that, like, you know, if I had to pick one, I might pick those. The other reports are actually the doctor's reports, and these are the ones which obviously historians have been most interested in. But the doctors who attended George III, they had their own agendas too. So, for example, Dr Addington was put in place by George IV when he was Prince Regent. And obviously he has a great agenda there where if George III is found sort of to be insane forever, he becomes king, essentially. He becomes the regent. And so all his debts would be paid off. And when you read Addington's thing, his diagnosis are, he's so mad, he's as mad as anything, he's a goner. And then you read the Willises, so they're the kind of the outside doctors brought in. And they obviously, they want a success, it's good for their business. And it, they're all kind of like, it's terrible, but he's getting better, it's all fine. So when you read these sources and when you read these accounts, every single one of them has this agenda behind them. So I think the idea of trying to diagnose from that is really, really tricky. But what we do get a sense of in all of these accounts is the sense of a man who is suffering. And I think that's the kind of the big takeaway from the illness of George III. And what do we know about how that illness presented um, itself? As you say, it's very hard to diagnose historically, but... It's it's hard, hard to diagnose, but so what what we know is that he had episodes of mania, one of the things is that he'd speak very, very quickly and wouldn't stop talking, almost rambling for hours and hours on end, starting the day, and he would still be speaking incessantly until two o'clock in the morning, by which time the doctors would bind him to his bed. The other symptoms were is that his legs started swelling. The idea of medicine in the 18th century is that you had either a deficit or an excess of, of one of the humours. So they would drain him in various ways, one of which was obviously bleeding is the most famous one. Sometimes they would make him vomit. The other thing they did was that they would put sort of caustic acid on his legs as another purge, as it were, which all seems very, very painful. But um, it actually, the first thing that happened is that he had a, a bout of vomiting. So I think one of the things as well, which I don't think he's picked up on, 
so much about historians is that there was a physical illness which went alongside the the mental illness as well. I think the thing is, is that he just had a terrible time. One of the things that happened is that he speaks about women he prefers to Queen Charlotte. So one of whom is kind of Lady Pembroke. And of course, if you are that little German princess who's come on a boat and her whole life for over 25 years has been, this is your husband and this is your life as its queen. And then there's mad ramblings that put doubt into that. That's going to be devastating because that means the whole purpose of your life is kind of void which is why the illness hits Queen Charlotte, I think, so badly. Do we have much evidence about what their relationship, their personal relationship was like before George's bouts of illness? Obviously, they had 15 children, but do we get a sense that they they were personally affectionate with one another, that they had a close relationship? When Charlotte arrives and within days, George III writes about how thrilled he is with his new wife. One of the things that really brought them together was music. Queen Charlotte brought two harpsichords along with her. So she's incredibly musical. We also know that George III played the flute. And one of the things in in their early days of the marriage is that they would do musical duets together, which I think I think is really cute, actually. And one of their sort of great shared passions, of course, was music. So their early, early days of marriage are kind of marked between going to some music concerts the whole time. It's a nice little detail. You said earlier that there was a detail that Shonda Rhimes had included of some drawings that Charlotte did. I wonder if there are any other little details that you spotted in the series that come from historical grains of truth. So that, that wedding dress that she, she wears, we know that Queen Charlotte's wedding dress was exceptionally glamorous. Apparently she wore a stomacher worth £70,000, which in 18th century money is kind of millions of pounds. But actually, that was that was what the English chose to, for her to wear. So there is no way that the province of Mecklenburg could afford sort of such such diamonds and, and so on. But we know that it's something that Queen Charlotte adored and spent a lot of money on throughout her life was the diamonds. So we know that her dress was in sort of incredibly fine silver tissue. So she was incredibly glamorous on her wedding day. What happened to her her German clothes is actually because she'd been so well kitted out on the English side, she gave away her German clothes, the words she used were, to the needful. So those plain German clothes did not survive into Queen Charlotte's wardrobe. So clearly she did like a bit of bling. Well, bling is on display in uh, great glory in this series. I mean, it looks sensational. The sumptuous palaces, the costumes, the wigs. Can you give us a sense of some of the work that goes into a production like this? I think there's sort of quite a lot of attention to detail. Actually, one of the things I want to speak about is when they came to film at Hampton Court, which was the one day that I I went on set, is that they put up these incredible awnings. I'm not sure whether that would have ever happened and filled the palace with carriages. They actually even copied, and and, and I think we'll see this carriage at the coronation, George, George III State, State Coach. They did it in miniature for the display. So just the kind of the thought and the effort that goes into the production is huge. And I think that's kind of quite a nice continuity in the fact that just seeing the palace at night lit by torches 
for us at Historical Palaces and for those for whom Hampton Courts are office and we know the kind of the rich history, what's always missing is horses and pomp and ceremony because obviously we can't have horses running around alongside the visitors the whole time. That must have been really exciting to see it all come alive like that. Yeah, it, it was. These palaces were kind of designed for parties. So the, our palaces are always the best at night time. And so seeing, seeing it lit by naked frames was really, really special. One of the things I'll always take with me having worked on this is just kind of that chance to see Hampton Court come alive. The series also explores a storyline that was running underneath the main series of Bridgerton. This idea of what is called in this the Great Experiment, in which Charlotte's marriage to the King heralds in a wave of people of colour being welcomed into the British aristocracy. Of course, this didn't happen in reality, but why do you think it's, it's an interesting thought experiment to explore in a period drama? Again, it's sort of this whole idea, what what if Queen Charlotte was, you know, could be as powerful as she certainly had the potential to be? What if some of the 15,000, I think there are about 15,000 black people living in 18th century London. Um, sadly, I think most of them had come over because of enslavement. So what, what if these people could have kind of great places in, in society? I think that's really interesting. But also I think there were amazing characters who did become very much part of court life. So there are characters like the Marquis de Spreeze. He was in the householders, the Duchess of Queensbury, and he was sort of elevated and given the money and potential of a gentleman. And he's very becomes very much part of kind of the entourage around the Prince Regent. So there were characters like that. But I think when we think of other characters like Dido Bell up at Kenwood, who's sort of under the care of Lord Mansfield, and you have that portrait of her where she's part of the household, but not quite on a par with the rest of the household. I think the great experiment really would have benefited someone like Dido Bell, where she could have had her place sort of comfortably in society, which she couldn't have done in real life. So this is is the third series within the Bridgerton universe, and there's set to be a fourth series coming. What do you think is behind just the immense success of Bridgerton as a concept? Why have people fallen in love with this universe and this world that Shonda Rhimes has created? I think she's opened up the Georgians to to us, and she's made them kind of human, I think we shouldn't forget that everyone in in that series is beautiful and it's all shot shot beautifully and everyone's wearing beautiful things. I mean, for me, the the Georgians, that is my period of history. For me, they feel like people who we could know. And so we know, for example, that because of their letters, they're kind of, they're much more sexually free. So many of the great court characters we know slept with both men and women. So I think there is this sort of, allure of that kind of glamour and sexuality as well which I think is brought out so nicely in in Bridgerton so I think that's why it's popular it's also so different from period dramas and um, one of the things I like is that there's so much colour which we know is so much part of the Georgian era but I think so many period dramas of the past everything's in these tasteful muted colours but it really wasn't so we know that George III for example had leopard print curtains in his bathroom in Buckingham Palace it is quite a gaudy era so the fact that kind of Bridgerton is so wonderfully gaudy I mean warms the cockle of this Georgian lover's heart that was Polly Putnam as well as being historical advisor on Queen Charlotte, Polly is a collections curator at Historic Royal Palaces. Queen Charlotte, a Bridgerton story, will be available to watch from tomorrow, the 4th of May, on Netflix. Hold up. 
Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.